I wonder if you've seen one of these messages before. It should come up on the screen. Have you seen one of these before? I get these every now and then, um, more frequently than I'd like to admit, on my iPhone, where every now and then I'll, um, I'll start up an app, and they said, would you, like, would you like to rate or review this app? I'll be honest with you. If it's been a bad day, usually I press my thumb quite aggressively into the leave me alone box. And if it's been a kind of bad to middling day, I might say, ask me later. In fact, that's my normal response. I think my computer's been trying to update itself for about 10 years now. Because every time it says, would you like to install updates? Remind me tomorrow. Remind me tomorrow. Once in a blue moon, and I mean like once in a blue moon, I might think, the sun's shining. I've got a minute on my hands. Why not help the dear people at Apple out? I mean, they need all the help they can get, right? This little fledgling company. And why not help them out? I'll leave a little review. How long could it possibly take? How long could it possibly take? Five minutes later, I am on question 12, subsection B of the customer review for the app, being asked questions about this app that I never, ever thought I would be asked. 10 minutes in, I'm still doing this thing. Guys, if you give these things an inch, they will take a mile. They will take a mile. And I just apologize now to anyone in the room online who spends their days trying to get people to fill in things like this. I'm not saying I'm in the right. I'm just making the point. <laughs> it's, it's a silly story. It's a, it's a, it's a silly little illustration. But we're going to be continuing in our series on Daniel today. And as Bo just read to us, looking particularly at this section about Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. And what I want to talk to, um, to, to us about today is idols. The things in our lives that we put our trust in. The things that we look to to fulfill us. The, the things that try to take the place of Jesus, that try to take the place of God in our lives. And what I want to suggest in a far more serious way is that idols, if you give them an inch in your life, they will take a mile. This, I, I'm going to confess up top, may be a slightly more intense sermon, but I believe God wants to speak to us this morning. And what I want to say to us today is that if we, if we by the Spirit of God, are able to recognize our idols and reject them, to flee from them, we'll have even more of the fullness of God in our lives. That actually, God revealing our idols is a kindness that he gives us, like taking poison from his children because he knows that they are the ultimate false advertisers. They can never do what they promise. They can never fulfill us. They can never sustain us. In fact, they do the opposite. They get to a certain point and they just begin destroying us. Because the only one who can fulfill us, the only one who can promise life in all its fullness and keep that promise is Jesus Christ. So let's jump into the text, shall we? Verse 1. Right, so we've got verse 1 here, chapter 3 of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. 
The first thing I want to draw our attention to is this image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar sets up. So this would have been a huge image, like almost like an obelisk that you've seen. And maybe if, if you've gone to a museum or know anything about ancient Egypt, massive golden image. And we're supposed to see this connect to the dream that uh, Daniel interpreted for King Nebuchadnezzar about a slightly different statue that was kind of like um, a warning to him. We're supposed to make that connection. But King Nebuchadnezzar cracks on and he thinks, oh, I know the answer to this. I'm going to build a massive statue of gold. Now, scholars are slightly divided on what this statue would have been. Some think this was literally a golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Others, and this seems more likely, reckon that it represented the empire of Babylon, this empire that was, that was seen as the great empire in the world, the all-conquering empire that would swallow all nations into it. So we've got the king King Nebuchadnezzar building this golden image. Tick. Next, we've got the king summoning all the key people. I mean, Bo did so well having to read this twice as well. We've got satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials. And it's very likely, because of the way that the Babylonian Empire was set up, that all kinds of other nations, too, would have been invited into this moment. I want to draw our attention to this, because what I really want us to see is that anyone who is anyone is at this thing. This is like a state function. Like the, um, what do they call it? The correspondence dinner at the White House, to give us a relevant example. It's like this, right? So, so everyone, all of the people, the, the, the leaders, those who are seen as wise in society, those who look over justice, those who look after the economy, the rulers, the powers of the day, all the celebrities would have been here. They're all called to be a part of this. And just maybe imagine, keep this image in your mind for the rest of the sermon, imagine this great golden image, perhaps, in the middle of Forest Wreck, and everyone who's anyone in the country coming around, all the celebrities, maybe even Joe, Joanne Arton will be there, local celebrities too. <laughs> Verse four, then the herald loudly proclaimed nations and peoples of every language. This is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, didn't have time to look up what a zither is, so if anyone knows, do let me know afterwards, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So now we've got the next bit. Everyone has stood, everyone has been summoned to this golden image. And now we're given the instructions. Bow down and worship when the band start playing, or burn. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It's not a hard decision. Bow down and worship when, when the music starts, or you'll be thrown into a fiery furnace. And we're not, told, we're not given any stipulations here of what the worship has to be. We're just told that it is a bow. And unsurprisingly, when presented with these options, we hear that all the people bow down. Let's read on. Verse 8, at this time, some astrologers came, came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. 
So here we come to the crux of the story. The image is set up. Anyone who's anyone is there. And they've all bowed down when the music starts playing. But there were some Jews. Daniel's three friends who we hear pay no attention to this and refuse to bow. The next thing we see is that the king goes nuts. He goes crazy. It says that he was furious with rage. And he, and, he, and he gets Daniel's three friends to him, and he sort of re-emphasizes the whole thing, right? He said, just in case you missed the memo, <laughs> if you don't bow, I'll throw you into a furnace. Like maybe, like, I don't know where you were when I gave that first instruction. Maybe you were having a drink. Maybe you were chatting to someone else. So just to be clear, because there's no way, right, that you wouldn't bow if you knew that. So just to be clear, I'll re-emphasize the option. You bow or you burn. And this, by the way, folks is not a quick death. This is, a, this, this is a daunting prospect the best of times, but, but being burnt, this is, this, is a, this is a punishment that throughout history has been reserved for crimes against institutions and for treason. You know, I don't mean to get gory here, but I just want to draw our attention to this because, because this, is not just a, this isn't just a death. This is a gruesome, torturous death. You know, the only point at which being burned to death becomes bearable is when the flames have burnt through the nerve endings on your skin. This is not a good death. But we see the friends, without hesitation, say this. Verse 16. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Verse 18. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So the message has been re-emphasized. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's three friends, still stand there without hesitation, say to the king, we'd rather burn. Those are our options. Bowing to this image or dying this kind of death, we'd rather burn. Just let that sink in for a moment. Think about you being faced with that option today. What would you say? Why? Why wouldn't they just bow? Why wouldn't they do it? You know, I've gone along with things that I know aren't good for me, things that I know aren't of the way of Jesus. I've gone, I've gone along with things for far lesser threats than death. I've bowed to things for social exclusion because I'm worried about not being popular or liked. Why don't they just bow? I want you to think about this on Forest Wreck again. Everyone's there. This isn't, what I want you to see is that this isn't some like marginal um, thing that's happening. This is an institutional ceremony, right? Everyone's there. This is a state affair. And I want you to imagine that your friends are there, people that you know are there, and you're faced with this option. You'd just bow, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you just bow? I mean, like, like think about this, right? It's not like 
everyone had to go up one by one and say a little line about the golden image and then bow. There was a massive crowd. They'd all have been lost in the crowd. And you could surely, surely you could bow and you could still be thinking the whole time, like, this is stupid, isn't it? It's just a golden image. You could, you could do it. You could, you could, I'm imagining, you know, being next to Bo and we could sort of bow and chuckle at each other like, isn't this stupid? We could sort of mock it, right? We could do it ironically. Why not just do it? Why not just bow? Surely it's a better option than death. Well, I want to suggest to us this morning, and this is really the only thing that I want you to hear, I want to suggest to us this morning that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bow because they know that if you give an idol an inch, it will take a mile. It will take 10 miles, 100 miles. This was the story of the Jewish people, wasn't it? They knew firsthand the chaos that idols unleashed upon them. They had heard the stories of the golden calf in the wilderness, of the idolatrous kings that bring war and calamity and rape and violence amongst the people. The fact that they're in exile is a result of Israel's idolatry. We see this time and time again. If you ever, if you ever, you know, I don't know if you want to sit outside sunbathing today and read through one and, one and two kings, you get into this kind of rhythm, if you've ever read it, where there's, there's a bad king and it says something like this, and then the other king came up and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And you're sat there reading your Bible and you think, oh, not again. And they do all these evil things and it's always connected to idolatry. And then every now and then, a good king comes along and it said, and so-and-so became king and they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And yet right at the end of their life, you often see that these good kings, they, they, they banish the idols. They banish the false gods from the people of God, and yet, but they don't do a full job. They always leave something. You know, often it's the high places, the Asherah. They always leave a little smidgen. And then, and then lo and behold, by the time the next generation are there, everything's in chaos again. Everything. But what I want to say is that here in Daniel chapter 3, this is the point. What we see here is a micro example of what God wanted for his whole people. The reason he led them into exile was to get them back. Do you see that? The people of God were led into exile so that they could see, they could see idols for what they were. And reject them. And instead of, instead of pursuing these chaotic, devastating idols again, they could be gods again. And he could adorn them with love. He could bless them. They could know peace and rest and fruitfulness. Idols ask for an inch and they take a mile. Because you see, this is the point. Idols are never just the object. Even in, even in the Bible, they're never just the object. Idols are the spiritual reality behind these things. And what I want to say is that no one, I really believe this, no one becomes idolatrous overnight. If Daniel and his three friends had bowed to the image, I don't think that, that they'd wake up the next day being fully signed up Babylonian worshippers, would they? I don't think it happens overnight. The demonic power of idols is precisely that they cause us to take a series of small, incremental steps away from the love and the goodness and the glory and the majesty of God and into a life that leads to destruction. That's what idols do. 
Doesn't this resonate? Does this resonate with you? Does this resonate with any of you who have watched, I don't know, any crime drama ever? I don't know if you can think of any um, uh, British crime dramas at the moment that people might be enjoying. I can't think of any, but uh, there's a few images that will come up on the screen. And if you're anything like me, here we go. If you're anything like me, at the beginning of the series, the person who then becomes the main suspect, the main kind of uh, bad guy throughout the series, often it starts with them doing one small thing wrong. And if you're anything like me, you're like screaming at the TV, just come clean. If you come clean now, it won't even be that bad. Just fess up to what you've done, and and it'll all be okay. But that doesn't make good TV, you see. So two episodes later, the person who could have just fessed up, and it wouldn't have even been that bad, is now on a double murder charge. They've, I don't know, sold one of their children. They've burnt down a house. It's all gone chaotic. (laughs) It doesn't happen overnight. It's a series of small steps that take us away from the goodness and the glory of God. You know, I remember when I was playing in bands, we, did I tell you I was cool? Yeah, I used to play in bands. And we were playing in Cardiff one night, and I remember we were, we were staying with this guy who was putting on the gig. And we got talking to an amazing guy, and we got talking to him, and he started opening up to us, we got back to his house. He had had real problems with heroin addiction in his life, had been in and out of rehab. And I started to ask him about his story, and, and he started to open up to me. He said, well, to be really honest with you, It started in my early teens when I smoked a bit of marijuana at a party. He was relatively innocent, he was saying. I just smoked a bit of that, and then the years went on, and and then my friends started getting into cocaine, and so we did a little bit of that. and, And progressively, do you see what's happening here? Progressively, things got worse and worse and worse. No one starts out. No one is saying to themselves, folks, You know what sounds fun? I'd love to be a heroin addict. No one thinks that. It's a series of small steps that begin breaking people apart. And this is why C.S. Lewis says, idols always break the hearts of their worshippers. Always. Even things that start off seeming relatively innocent. Even things that don't seem that bad to start off with. You follow that road down and they always break the hearts of their worshippers. And this is why God revealing our idols is a gift and a grace. God isn't just trying to make us, you know, try harder to self-flagellate, to sort of anything we enjoy must be an idol, therefore it goes on the rubbish heap. Exile is a gift because God wants all of us. Because he knows that the only way that we have real hope, the only way that we can know real love and fulfillment in our life, the only one who we can actually trust in, the only one who can really fulfill the longings of our heart, hearts is him. He doesn't expose our idols to shame us, but to free us. I promise you. Keep that in mind right now if you're feeling that God is pressing a button in you. He's doing it to bring you more and more and more freedom because idols can never live up to their promises. God only lives up to his promises. He only lives up to his promises. Exile is a gift. So what does this mean for us? (laughs) Having said all of that. Well, I want to say, stay with me here. I actually am, in some ways, envious of Daniel's three friends. Not of the fiery furnace. I'm not envious of that. What I'm envious of is, is, in a way, it would feel like life was easier to navigate. Following Jesus would be easier. To, if, if all our idols were massive golden statues, right? I could walk around Nottingham and say, idol, steer clear of that. 
idle there, steer clear of that. <laughs> but it doesn't quite happen like that, does it? Idols can be much more subtle, and particularly in our context, in our society, idols can be ideas. They can be stories, they can be narratives, institutions that we pledge our allegiance to. And so how do we recognize the idols in our lives? For some of, it, for some of us, this will be like, George, you don't, you don't need to tell me how to recognize my idols. I know what my idols are, especially after the last year of COVID. You know, perhaps you've realized in the last year that the, the you actually, what you actually put your trust in when push comes to shove isn't God, but it's control. And it's only by having control ripped away from you that you've, you've realized how sort of disruptive that is, that that's an idol in your life. Maybe, maybe actually your real trust was in your health, right? That, you know, like, I say I trust God, but really when it comes down to it, really I, I put my trust in the fact that I'm healthy and, and okay. Some of those will be obvious after this past year and a half. Some of the idols that have been exposed to us, that God has exposed to us as a gift in COVID, will be, will be obvious. But there are others um, that are a little more subtle. And I, I just want to give, and by the way, this is no, by no means exhaustive, but I just want to give a couple of... Um, things that I found helpful that I've learned and offer these to us this morning. How do we recognize our idols? Number one, do you sense God's pleasure? Let me explain this. So when I first started training to be a vicar, something happened that really surprised me. Lots of my friends that I'd known for years and years <laughs> started like coming to me and asking me about particular TV shows and genres of music. Like, and really what they were asking was like, is this okay to watch this, listen to this if I'm a Christian? Which just amazed me how many conversations I still have about that. And these conversations would go on and on and on. And the question I've learned to ask myself and others is simply this. Do you feel God's pleasure in that moment? When you're watching that thing, doing that thing, participating in that thing, do you imagine Jesus in the room smiling? Let me be honest with you folks. Most of us, when we're asking these questions, we know the answer. Like if something isn't good for us, if something is muddying the presence of God in our lives, we already know it. If we were going to be really honest with ourselves and say, I'm not so sure, do, God, do I feel your pleasure in this moment? Do I feel the presence of your spirit? Do I feel your smile and your joy upon this thing? Most people know the answer. Am I right? Do you agree? You know, one of the things the church has got so wrong, I believe in history, is that it's made us draw lists, religious lists of good and bad, where everything fits neatly into one of those columns. And there are absolutes in the kingdom. We have the scriptures, we have the words of God. If someone says, should I take revenge on my enemy? I would say no. Look at Matthew's gospel. You're supposed to love your enemies, even pray for them. But not everything fits so neatly into a list. And we go down that route, and next thing we find, that we're arguing with our brothers and sisters in Christ about Harry Potter. That's not God's best for his church, surely. Is not the way to develop a relationship with the living God, where in every moment we're asking the Holy Spirit, Lord, what pleases you? What are you saying in this moment? What is making me more like Jesus Christ? Is that not the better way? God wants to speak to you so much more than you realize. Let me give you an example of this. 
I've spoken before in sermons about um, how I've struggled with pornography in my life. And so just to give you a really practical example, TV shows, for example. I honestly, folks, I don't have much of an issue with action and adventure. Great. I can, I can do that. I don't, you know, I don't feel that it's taking me away from the love of God. I can do lots of those movies. But if something, a TV show or a movie, has a high, high amount of sexual content, it's not good for me. It's just not good. I know that now. I, I, I can ask the Holy Spirit in that moment. Like, I know this isn't good for me because the idol of sex, sexual gratification, is one that I've had to wrestle with in my life. And it's never just watching the show. It's watching the show and then I start to feel lustful. And then later on, I, I, uh, there's, I maybe look at an inappropriate picture online. And then a few months down the line, I'm watching pornography. And then I start to look at women in a different way. And then my marriage starts to become devastated. That makes sense. Number two, does it sound like the kingdom? This is simple. I won't take long on this one. Does it resonate with the kingdom as Jesus proclaims and demonstrates it in the Gospels? Maybe you're making a business investment. Does it promote love, generosity, compassion, kindness? Is it all about profit, or is there a greater vision to serve others, to be radically generous? Does it sound like the kingdom? Is the idol here money, or is it worship to God? Number three, <laughs> will it make you more like Jesus? In this moment, will this pattern of thought, will this idea, will it make me more like Jesus? Am I seeing more of the fruits of the Spirit in my life as a result of doing this? That's simple, isn't it? Galatians 5. Am I becoming more joyful? Do I have a greater sense of peace? Am I more grateful? Am I less irritable? And we see the result of this, don't we? We haven't got time to go into this today, but as the three friends reject this idol are willing to face even death over worshipping an idol. What do we see? God shows up. God shows up in the fire. We see an unprecedented revelation of God's presence and his power. God shows up in the furnace and even Nebuchadnezzar, even the powers of the age, are left stunned you know, when we do this, when we flee from idols, when we take seriously the way of Jesus and really believe that his love is enough, that his kingdom is enough, that he's the only one who can fulfill us, that he's the only one that we can trust with our futures, that he's the only one who comes through every time on his promises, that he's the only one that knows what's best for my life, for my family, for my kids, for my spouse, for my friends, for my company. When we believe that, it may look like a fiery furnace. It won't necessarily be easy. I may step into the fire, but I tell you, there will be the presence of the one who stands with me in the fire. And it will be Jesus Christ. There will be the power of God to deliver me in those moments. And some of the people who will be your biggest critics as you flee from the idols of this age will be the same people who are inquiring about the presence of God they see on your life later on. I've seen this. But all of this is about having more of you. All of these words.
We want to put ourselves into your hands. We want to put the church into your hands, Jesus. We stand and pray together.